The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Amos 2, 6 through 16. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those that have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the heights of the cedar and he was strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your son for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press down your... I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he ride the horse saves his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that city, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, hey, uh, it's me again from two minutes ago. Uh, Man, so glad to be with you guys. Uh, Real quick before we kind of dive in this evening, I want to draw your attention to something that should have been in your bulletin. Uh, It's this little card that on one side says give like God and on the other side has a bunch of words. Uh, In case you didn't know, next week starts a season in the life of the global church called Advent. And Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. And it's a season that the church across the world sets aside to celebrate and remember two arrivals. The first is we look back in celebration at the first arrival of Jesus 2,000 some years ago in a manger in Bethlehem. And the second is we look forward in anticipation and hope to the second arrival of Jesus, where he's going to come not as a baby in a manger, but as a ruling and reigning and conquering king. And so we're taking that time set aside specifically this year as a church to do a, it's kind of a series, kind of an initiative all wrapped up into one that we're calling Give Like God. It's a chance for us as a church to look at the generosity of God to us on that first Christmas and to respond as a people in a season marked by consumption to be a people not of consumption but of generosity. And I just want to say this because you'll find on that card, and we're going to have this in the bulletin the next four weeks, a bunch of ways that we're kind of stepping into generosity as a church. But I want to acknowledge, particularly in a city like Charlotte, that anytime a church says, we're going to spend four weeks talking about giving, that myself included gets a little bit, I don't know that I like that. Uh, And so let me just encourage you that uh, let's just acknowledge that sometimes it's weird. And sometimes churches do a lot of weird things when it comes to finances and giving. And I want to just encourage you, because I'm going to try to do this as well, is just to step in with a sense of hope and a sense of trust that we're going to do as much as possible to not be weird and to do strange things and to talk about it in really strange ways. But we do want to lay before our church a foundation of discipleship that includes what we do with our finances. And so we're stepping into this initiative together. There's tons of details, all of that. Uh, We also have a website, givelikegod.com, because how much fun is it just to own givelikegod.com? 
Um, uh, and so you can check out all of that as well that has information and links and all of that of what we are pressing into together as a church family. We're going to talk about this a ton over the next four weeks. just wanted to lay that in front of you to, to what to look forward to in the Advent season. If you have questions, any of that, we, uh, again, we just want to press into the weird together. Uh, a lot of things the world says we can't talk about, two in particular, are sex and money. And I figured we talked about sex last week. We might as well talk about money next week. Uh, because if we can't talk about it in the church, where are we going to talk about it? All right. That's next week. This week is even more fun. We're going to talk about the book of Amos. Who's excited about that? No one. Cool. Uh, we uh, are in between two sermon series, the sermon series we just came from, Do What Jesus Did, and next week, Give Like God. And so we have kind of this standalone Sunday where we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. And I thought it'd be a ton of fun and really helpful for our church to just do a 30,000-foot overview covering this uh, minor prophet in the Old Testament named Amos. And there's two specific reasons why I want to do this. The first is that I want to help us as a church, continue to grow in our ability to read the Bible. Let's be honest, Amos is one of those books in our Bible reading plans that we either skip it or we skim it, right? There's a lot of prophecy, there's a lot of songs, there's a lot of poetry. It's this guy named Amos talking to these people 2,700 2, years ago. Like, what does it have to do with me? And so my hope is that by teaching us through this book that we would be able to better read not just Amos— but other minor prophets as well, books like Joel and Obadiah and Nahum and others in the Old Testament. But the second reason, and I would argue the more important reason, is that if you have eyes to see it, Amos is a beautiful and wonderful and hope-filled picture of the gospel. Jesus on the road to Emmaus in the book of Luke says that all of the scriptures, including books like Amos, point to him. So if we have eyes to see it, Amos can be this beautiful, encouraging, hope-filled, full of rest and invitation book for us as we look at the mercy of God. And that's what I'm hoping for today. So let me pray for us one more time, and then we're just going to head straight into it. Lord, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for all of the parts that we like to read often and some of the parts we don't go to often like Amos, Lord. But I pray that in light of the reality that all of it is breathed out by you, and all of it is profitable, God, that you would use Amos to convict us, encourage us, rebuke us, and spur us on more and more towards love and good deeds. God, where we get a glimpse, even in this book of Jesus on the cross, and yet also risen again, reigning and ruling forever. Lord, I pray that you would use this book to shape our hearts, mold our affections, change our minds. We need you. We love you. Pray things in God's name. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Amos. Now, the best way to think about the book of Amos is to think about it as a story with a double plot twist. So in case you're unfamiliar with that, uh, think about the movie Frozen. All right, so Frozen starts with one main plot. Anna's heart has been frozen by her sister Elsa. This is not a spoiler. It's been out for 10 years, believe it or not. Elsa freezes her heart in this moment of sadness and desperation, and so they take Anna to the trolls, and the trolls say the only thing that can thaw a frozen heart is an act of true love. And so plot point number one in Frozen is that she needs to go back to Arendelle and kiss Hans. So most of the movie is centered around that plot of her going back to kiss Hans. But when she gets back, you realize Hans is actually evil. Plot twist number one, she doesn't need to kiss Hans, she actually needs to kiss Kristoff. 
So she turns her attention. She runs after Kristoff. As she's running towards him, she sees that her sister Elsa is about to be killed by a sword. She runs over there instead, risks and sacrifices her own life. And it turns out that that was the act of true love that actually could thaw her frozen heart. Plot twist number two. I have two uh, three-year-old girls and under. That's my life. That's my best attempt at an intro. Amos is a plot with two plot twists. There you go. Amos chapter one, verse one. I'm just trying to help you. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. All right, immediately we are taken at the very beginning of the book into a story of Amos. He's our main character. And the text says that he is a shepherd from this region named Tekoa, and God has raised him up as a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets were those who spoke to God on behalf of the people and from God to the people. And just to give you a little background on the days of Jeroboam, what happens here is that Israel, God's people, the descendants of Abraham, are split up at this point into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom named Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. And this split happens around 975 BC. And 200 or so years after that split, they are just under attack after attack from different enemy nations. I mean, they're just getting crushed time and time again until finally around 70 80 BC, their luck starts to turn. Assyria, their main enemy, starts having some infighting and fighting against each other about who's going to reign and rule. And so Israel, the northern kingdom in particular, steps into this season of incredible prosperity that they had not seen since the reign of David and Solomon pre-split of the two nations. And the people take this new prosperity as being a sign that they are entering into what they called, quote, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord to the Jewish people was a day they looked forward to with great anticipation and hope. It was a day that all of the prophets spoke about where one day the Messiah, the chosen one, would be sent by God to wipe out God's enemies usher in God's forever kingdom and establish God's people, the Israelites, as his chosen ones forever. And so they think we're doing awesome. We have all of this prosperity and success. Our enemies are floundering. This is now the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming soon. The problem is, as Amos is about to tell them, is they could not be more wrong. You see, at this time, Israel, the northern kingdom, is led by a king named Jeroboam II. And that, Jeroboam II, is an awesome king in most ways. He's like an incredible general. He wins a ton of fights. He's great at creating a, a economic success and prosperity for the nation. The problem is that he is extremely, extremely wicked. And he brings in all of these false idols and false gods into the people, and he leads them into a pattern as a nation of tremendous, tremendous oppression to the poor. It was like one of the primary ways that he introduced creating economic success in Israel was that they should take advantage of the poor. So God raises up Amos, sends him as a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and this is what he says, verse 2. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. 
So at that time, God dwelt among his people in the temple, which is in Jerusalem. And God says, hey, from Jerusalem, from the temple, the Lord is shouting that he is angry, that he is not pleased, that he is frustrated and upset, so much so that not just the shepherds, but the pastures of the shepherds are mourning. In uh, ancient Eastern texts, they have a lot of word pictures to kind of summarize what's happening. And he says, one of these word pictures is that a mountain is literally withering. That's how mad God is, is that Carmel would actually wither at how angry he is. And from there, Amos is going to go on this entire monologue about God's punishment for the enemies of Israel. He's just going to say thing after thing after thing about how God is so angry at these other nations. But what's fascinating about the text is that God is not angry for them worshiping false gods, which is what is true in most of the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament, when God is angry at other nations, he's angry because they're not worshiping him. But here in the text, God is not angry because of that. He is angry because of the way they're treating the poor. So notice this. We'll look at a couple of them. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Verse six, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. Verse 13, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they've ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. Chapter two, verse one, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So you'll notice Amos keeps repeating the same line for three transgressions and for four. And that's a, a pattern in the Hebrew text. It's a, really a poetic saying that Hebrew authors would use to express how large something is. So three in the Hebrew means multitude. It means a multiple. It means there's more than one. There's three. And when someone says to the fourth, what a Hebrew author is saying is that this is so much more than you can even imagine. And so for Amos here to say over and over again that there's three transgressions and for four, he says the wickedness of these nations against the poor is so great that you cannot even fathom it. And he says, God is angry with this. He is upset. He is frustrated. He sees the wickedness and injustice and the sins that these nations are committing against others, and he is not going to let it slide. Which is worth us just pausing here in the text to see how beautiful of a picture that is of our God. If you have been mistreated, if you have been slandered, if you have been gossiped about, if you have been hurt, if you have been maligned, if you have been abused in any way, physically, sexually, emotionally, fill in the blank, God is angry about that injustice done to you. He is so righteously wrathful towards the wickedness and injustice done by others to others. He's angry about it. He says, I will not let this slide. This is not okay how they are treating others. So first and foremost, let Amos 1 be an encouragement to your soul. If you have been mistreated, God is not happy about that. He's angry. He's frustrated. He is, has wrath stored up for the wrongs and injustices they're committing. 
Now, at this point, Amos, this little shepherd farmer from the southern kingdom, has probably drawn, drawn quite the crowd in Israel, right? They're gathering around being like, we like this guy. Amos came from the southern kingdom. He's telling us about how our na the nations around us, these enemies are wicked and evil, and God's going to punish them. Like, I'm in. Preach, right? Like, he's giving way more feedback than you guys are giving to me right now. <sighs> but here comes the first twist. Plot twist number one. God will also punish Israel for their wrong and injustice. So we're heading in this direction. Hey, gather around, northern kingdom. Gather around, Israel. God is going to punish these other nations for all of the wickedness that they have done. But plot twist number one, he is also going to punish you. He also has righteous judgment and wrath for you, which is fascinating to me that Israel is no different than us as Americans. Because what we want often is God's justice for the wrongs done to us, but God's mercy for the wrongs that we do. I see this so clearly when I drive. Uh, this is a really cheesy example. But if somebody cuts me off in traffic, traffic, they are terrible, annoying, should not drive, worst driver in the world, and I can't believe they would not see that I am on the road, right? But if I cut someone off, like hypothetically I did yesterday, oh, I just didn't see them. Oh, they were in my blind spot. Oh, I'm in a rush. Oh, I'm just thinking about something else. That's a silly example. We do that with everything, right? We want to put our wrongs against others and say, God, will you have justice for this? But here's all the justifications for mine. God, will you have justice for this, but here's all the mercy I want for mine. And God says, no, 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 Israel. I hate all injustice. I hate all wickedness. I hate all wrong. I have punishment for all of it. And look at what he says about Israel in chapter two, verse six. He says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. The same line, he says, you're just as guilty of just as many injustices because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. See, what was happening in Israel at this time is that the wealthy were ignoring the poor. Instead of using their wealth, using their abundance and generosity to care for those in need, they're hoarding and accumulating more and more. And one of the things in particular they were doing, instead of being generous towards the poor, is they were allowing the poor and pushing the poor to sell themselves into debt slavery, indentured servitude. Hey, if you need to pay off your debt, just come be my servant for a little while. And then when they became their servant, they would start denying them legal representation. They would start denying them equal rights as a part of the kingdom of Israel. And God says, this is not okay. You're not using with abundance of what I've given you to bless and serve the poor. Instead, you are taking advantage of the poor. And he says, God is angry for this. And there's a whole host of reasons but why, but he's going to tell them two in particular. There's two reasons why this is not okay. The first reason why he says this is not okay is that you who are taking advantage of and oppressing others are the very same people I brought out of oppression in Egypt. It's a beautiful part. Look at verse nine. He says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, 200 plus years of slavery in Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up for you some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. 
God says, I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. You, the very people who are putting others under the bondage of oppression, I led you out of oppression. I led you out of slavery, and now you're turning around, not treating others the same way I treated you. You needed freedom, and I rescued you, and now you're turning around putting others under this burden of oppression. Second reason that God is angry is because this was supposed to be his people. They were supposed to be his family. They were supposed to be set apart by him to be righteous in the world. Look at what he says at the beginning of chapter 3. Amos says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. God says, not only have I led you out of oppression and slavery, I've made you into a family. Not just any family, my family. You're supposed to love one another like what is true about you, meaning that you are supposed to be my sons and daughters. And this is not how sons and daughters treat one another. I set you apart from Abraham on to be my people. For the next couple of chapters, the diagnosis for Israel is going to get worse and worse and worse. Amos is going to continue as a prophet to speak for God. And in chapter 3, God addresses how the, the people of Israel have forsaken love of neighbor, neighbor in pursuit of more. So rather than letting God's love for them flow into love for those around them, particularly the most vulnerable and outcasted in society, instead they just keep accruing and hoarding more and more and more. God even says this beautiful line at the end of chapter 3. He says, I hate your winter and summer houses, which is a word for us, but do what you will. Chapter 4, he goes on. He talks about how he'll attack their worship of false idols and false gods. Amos talks about in chapter 4 how they would go up to these two cities, Gilgal and Bethel, and they would perform all of the Jewish religious rituals that they were supposed to perform to worship God, and they would instead perform them to worship idols. And God says, you're doing this because the idols don't talk back, and they won't tell you that you're wrong. He says, the whole reason that you're doing all of these worship of false gods is that you can pacify your conscience and feel good because you're worshiping, but these gods won't tell you like I do that you are wrong because of your injustices to the poor. Then he goes on in chapter five and he says, hey, even when you don't go to Gilgal and Bethel, even when you go to Jerusalem to worship me, I still hate it because you're worshiping me, but you're neglecting justice and righteousness. So you're coming to me and you're worshiping me with false lips. You keep telling me, God, we love you and we're worshiping you, but you're not loving those around you. And just like first John four says, you cannot claim to love God and hate your brother for the love of God is not in you. God says, so I hate you for all, I don't hate you, but I'm mad at you for all of these reasons. So if I could summarize for us the first five chapters of Amos, it would be this. All these nations around Israel are under God's wrath and judgment because of the way they hurt others and mistreat others and abuse others. But plot twist number one, Israel too is under the wrath of God because they're his chosen people. He delivered out of Egypt, but they're under his wrath because one, they're mistreating those in need. Two, they're neglecting the poor in pursuit of more wealth and comfort. Three, they're worshiping false gods. And four, they're honoring God with their lips, but not their lives. I think it's worth pausing here before we finish the book to acknowledge that even with 2,700 years and 10,000 plus miles of separation, we are not all that different from the people of Israel, are we? Well, specific ways that we live out these sins might be different, the heart posture is still the same. I mean, consider this. Do we not, like Israel, in the day-to-day -day of our lives, shun and neglect the poor? And I don't even mean actively. I think for a lot of us, myself included in the room, where I've been convicted by Amos over the past couple of weeks, is that I don't actively 
shun those of a lower socioeconomic class, I just set up my life to never have to interact with them at all. The restaurants I go to, the neighborhood that I live in, the places that I spend my free time, the ways that I drive to and from work. I don't actively neglect and shun, but the way that I set up my life to only interact with those of similar or higher socioeconomic status than me is neglecting and shunning the poor. And Amos is convicting to me. It's worth considering, do we not, like Israel, take advantage of one another, always seeking to accumulate more and more for ourselves rather than living with open-handed generosity? And again, I think this is more, like, more under the surface and sneaky than explicit. I don't think most of us are going into work being like, who am I going to take advantage of today to make more money? Like, that's not our posture. But do we not, when we get the raise at work, or we get the extra bonus check we weren't expecting, do we not first go to, oh man, that awesome vacation, Ah, oh, that house project I've been waiting on. Oh, that purchase I really wanted to make. Or is our posture open-handed? Do we not say with the church at Corinth, Lord, you've given us so much so that we can be generous to others? It's worth considering. Do we not like Israel worship and devote our lives to false gods? This is everything we talked about last week, right? We make God into an image of our own choosing who always and only ever agrees with the decisions that we make. Do we not lay our lives down at the false gods of capitalism and consumerism who don't convict us for our spending habits, but rather applaud us for our spending habits? Do we not create false gods who never bring conviction into our process or our, our lives around money? It's worth considering, do we not, like Israel, come into gathered worship ready to sing and praise and worship while neglecting justice and righteousness? Do we not even sing songs like, We've shunned the weak and poor, all the while in my own heart, knowing the ways that day in and day out, I shun the weak and poor. The specific ways we sin may have changed, the human heart has not. We are still rebellious, turned away from God and from one another, even while God constantly calls to us like he did to Israel in chapter 5, seek me and live. It's a continual invitation from God to the Israelites, seek me and live. I know that you're running after these false gods, but seek me and live. I know that you're neglecting the poor, but seek me and live. Turn from your ways. Come and find true life. Yet stuck in our sin, we, like the Israelites, neglect justice. We neglect righteousness. We worship false gods. We turn from the one true God. And so we deserve what God warns Israel of in chapter 5, verse 18. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, Israel, and not light. As if a man fled from a, this is a great picture, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. He says, Israel, you're looking for the day of the Lord, not realizing that you're running from a lion and you're meeting a bear named the Lord. You're running into your house thinking you've escaped the wrath of your enemies, not realizing that I have wrath restored and reserved for you. He says, you think the day of the Lord is coming to save you. You are under punishment as well. And specifically, God says, if you keep reading through Amos, that this punishment is going to come at the hands of another nation. He says, another nation is going to rise up. They are going to overthrow you, take you into captivity. And if you track Israel's history, you know that comes true. You can read it. Second Corinthians 17. If you're like, I need something to read tomorrow morning in my quiet time, you can read about Israel's captivity. Second Kings 17. That was a good joke, guys. Come on. 
40 years after these prophecies of Amos, the nation of Assyria rises up, they take Israel into captivity, and the story gets worse and worse. And in chapter 7, Amos gives all of these word pictures for what the destruction of Israel is going to be like because of God's punishment for their injustices against the poor. And it's not a good picture. He says that he sees Israel devastated by a locust storm. And then, if that's not enough, they're then destroyed by a scorching fire. And then they're swallowed up like someone would devour a basket of overripe fruit. Then in his final picture in chapter 9, he sees God destroying the temples and altars that they built to the false gods that they were worshiping. And the visions end this way, Amos 9, 9 and 10. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. It's this picture of God's justice for those who have failed to execute justice. The end has come for Israel. But there's good news. There's a second twist. It's not how the story will end. The curtain doesn't close. The screen doesn't fade to black with a destroyed Israel rotting as overripe fruit. Instead, there's this paragraph at the end of Amos that really gives meaning and hope to the entire book. Let's look at it together. Amos 9, verse 11. In that day... God says, I will raise up the booth or house of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. The same mountains that God says are destroyed by the voice of the Lord will now drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Here's twist number two. God will restore for himself a people called by his name. Twist number one, bad news, Israel. You're just as guilty and just as much under the wrath of God. But here's the good news. Twist number two, God will restore for himself a people called by his name. God says, out of the ashes of Israel's destruction, I will rebuild the booth, the house, the lineage of David, which we know is a foreshadowing to what we're about to celebrate. The coming of the Messiah, the one who will come through the family line of David, through the booth, the house of David as the true Messiah and king, and will rebuild a family, God's people, not just from Israel, but people from all nations who call on the name of the Lord. And all of the devastation and destruction caused by Israel's rebellion against God will be reversed by the Messiah king who will come to usher in God's forever kingdom and a new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who worship God and God alone will be created, and out of their worship will overflow into love and good deeds towards the poor. And that is how Amos shows us Jesus. That is how Amos puts the gospel on display, because it shows us so clearly the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. Because God is just, he must confront the evil. Because God is just, he is too righteous and holy to not exercise judgment on those who would sin against him and sin against others. But because God is merciful, he is also, even in Amos, working out his long-term plan to redeem and restore a people for himself. So he says, Israel, you're under punishment, but here's the good news. One day I'm going to restore the booth of David. One day a Messiah will come 
God, because he is just, cannot let wickedness go unpunished. There will be justice for those who would mistreat or harm or hurt or take advantage of one another. And God has righteous judgment and wrath for all of that, but also in his mercy, he is always working something else out. In his mercy, just like he will for Israel, he will provide for us the greatest sacrifice. The one who comes in the line of David, who stands as our mediator, who stands as our great high priest, our great king, our great prophet, our great intercessor, who goes between us and God, who through his life, death, and resurrection washes away all of the ways that we have and now and will neglect the poor. That's the good news of Amos. The good news of Amos is that God would look at us just as guilty, just as wicked as the Israelites who shun and neglect the poor, who worship false gods, who give them all of our praise with our mouths, but not with our lives and say, yes, and one day I will raise up from the booth of David a Messiah who will die and yet live and rise again to wash us clean and makes us new. If I can summarize that for us, I would say it in two lines. That would be this, because God is just, he must punish He must punish our sin. But because God is merciful, he provides the one who takes our punishment. That's the beautiful picture of Amos. That's why these books are so good. We don't skip them and skim them. We go, oh, look, it showed us Jesus. That because God is just, that he will punish our sin, but because he is merciful, he provides the one who lives perfectly and yet takes our punishment. The one who never neglected the poor, but became poor himself took on flesh, gave up his own life so that we could be made right with God. And so we look at the book of Amos and we have a twofold invitation. And here's where I'll close. The, the twofold invitation from the book of Amos that I hope you remember every time you open to this book, maybe tomorrow. The first is this, to rest in and celebrate with joy the mercy of God. To just sit in those last five verses and remember, oh yeah, God raised up a Messiah from the booth of David to just rest in that. I mean, one opportunity this week, right? Thanksgiving, you're like eating the turkey, doing what you do with your friends and family, all of that. Just a chance to give him thanks and remember. Maybe he'll even bring Amos 9, 11 to mind. You're eating the turkey and he's like, remember how I raised up a Messiah from the booth of David? And you're like, yeah, awesome. First invitation is to rest, the good news of the gospel. But the second invitation is to let the rest that we have in the mercy of God then lead us and draw us to not neglect the poor to draw us into a life where we love and serve and not neglect those around us in need, starting with the family of God and then branching out into our city, caring for those in desperation, financially, in need of hospitality, in need of welcome that only Jesus can give. That's the invitation of Amos. We rest in the gospel and then we're propelled by the gospel into a life of justice and righteousness. That's the good news of Amos. That's what draws us in. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Amos. God, thank you for the beautiful invitation that we have from Amos to see Jesus. That even in the midst of this prophet going from Judah up to Israel, going to the temple and declaring for a really long time about how mad you are about their injustices, that it still ends with this beautiful picture of a Messiah. This beautiful picture of King Jesus, that one day he will come from the line of David to call out a people for yourself, 
God, thank you as we even enter into the season of Advent. We get to celebrate that and remember that and rest and rejoice in that. God, I pray that as we do, as we rest in the fact that you sent Jesus into our place to take our punishment, God, as we rest in that, would you let the gospel propel us into a life of justice and righteousness? We would not neglect the poor. We would not set our lives up in such a way where we can just ignore the suffering around us, ignore the need around us. God, I pray that you would help us as a people step into the needs of those in our church and those in our city and those in our world. God, would Amos 5 not be true of Citizens Church? God, would you not be able to say over us, you worship me with your lips, but you have neglected justice and righteousness. Lord, would that not be true of us? that we be people of deep justice, deep righteousness, deep reconciliation, deep care for the poor because of what Christ has done for us. Not to earn your approval, but because we have the deepest approval we will ever need from you. We love you. We need you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.